I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 59 of the Talking Golf History podcast. The history of golf in America has plenty of great moments, but behind some of those moments, there is a group of people who were underrepresented and underappreciated for their golfing skills. This year on the Talking Golf History Podcast, we will do our best to share some of these stories with you. After years of being kept in the dark, it's time to shine a light on some of golf's unheralded pioneers, men and women who were treated differently just because the color of their skin. Today on our show, we shine the light on the golfing career of Anne Gregory, the very first black woman to play in the U.S. Women's Open and the U.S. Women's Amateur. Before we start, a very special thanks to the USGA Golf Museum for their stunning research on the career of Anne Gregory. This will mark the third time the USGA has joined us on the show, and I can assure you it won't be the last time, even in 2021. Today we welcome our guest, junior curator of the USGA Golf Museum, Kylie Garabed, who is taking great pleasure in helping to bring Anne Gregory's story into the light. Kylie, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Golf History. Thank you for having me. Uh, Kylie, I sincerely appreciate the USGA Museum for being a big part of the show. Uh, would you mind sharing with everyone what you do at the museum? I've been with the museum for about going on four years now. My title is a junior curator of collections. Um, and in that role, I help care for the collection. Um, you know, we try to maintain high standards of preservation. And I also help develop some content for social media channels. And, you know, I just get to play with artifacts all day. So I mean, that's kind of a dream job for a lot of us. Yeah, definitely for me. How did you find your way to uh, working for the USGA? I started um, as an intern in the library and museum. Uh, We also have a library in our museum. Um, And then I just moved right into a role as a collections assistant, and I've been with them since 2017 when I graduated college, actually. Now, what did you study in college that got you into this career path? Um, I studied history and literature, basically, but then I also majored in gender and women's studies, which, you know, while I was studying that, I didn't think I would be using it as much as I am, but the skills I learned sharing the stories of a marginalized group of people has really helped me at the museum and our most recent push to help elevate those voices that haven't been elevated throughout history. Absolutely. Okay, before we start talking about the great Anne Gregory, I have to ask you, what is the coolest thing you've seen in the museum? I wasn't, I'm not a golfer. Um, so I must say my the coolest thing that I've seen in the museum is the golf bag of a person who is not a golfer, um, Amelia Earhart. Oh wow! That you have your her golf bag? I'm not. I wasn't even aware of that. 
and a set of clubs and some head covers. Um, obviously, she wasn't famous for golfing, but um, all reports say that in her um, hall closet, you know, you can't open the door to put your coat in there without a golf bags falling out um so she was a huge fan of the game and um we are lucky enough to have her items oh wow i did not i was not aware of that that's amazing i love that okay so um our show today is a celebration of one of the most unheralded golf champions in golf history and gregory uh, miss gregory was one, not only one of our finest female amateurs of all time but she happened to be black and as such, one of the great pioneers of golf in America. Now, Kylie and Gregory's path to the game was not streamlined. Uh, she came to the game late in life, and she had plenty of hurdles to overcome. What do we know about her before she started playing golf? Um, we know that she um, grew up in the South, in Mississippi. Um, she lost her parents young, uh, and then was taken in by her parents' employers had her work as their maid so that she could continue to stay there. Do we know, was that a paid job? No, it, you know, she was being paid in room and board, essentially. Um, I guess the agreement was she would work for them and they would feed her and clothe her and get her through high school. And from all accounts, she wasn't, she felt that she was mistreated there. I'm sure she wished she could just have had a normal upbringing. That's not what she got. But after that, she moved with her husband to Gary, Indiana. You know, so she sort of left the South and went up to Gary. And it was only actually while her husband was away serving in World War II that she took up golf. Uh, she said that she did it to sort of fill the hole that he left. So she just sort of grabbed his clubs and went to Gleason Park, which is the public course in Gary, and joined the Chicago Women's Golf Club and. That was when she was 31, so she didn't swing a golf club until she was in her 30s, which is incredible considering what happened to her for the rest of her career. Absolutely. I mean, she's not unlike, you know, Walter Travis picking up the game in the in her 30s. So how did she go about picking it up? Was, was there someone who took her, you know, under their wing to teach her the game? Yes, actually. Um, so she started with the Chicago Women's Golf Club and sort of entered the community that way. And then from there, she was connected with Calvin Ingram, who was a professional on the United Golfers Association tour. And the UGA was a tour that was founded just a few years after the PGA was founded in response to the fact that PGA was barring black golfers from competing in their tournament. So Calvin Ingram, you know, was on this tour and um, must have lived in the area. And she was able to get lessons from a professional which is just an amazing experience for her. Could you maybe expand upon, uh, if you can, the United Golfers Association? It was basically, you know, golf's version of baseball's Negro Leagues. Can you sp yeah. maybe expand a little bit on its impact on the game of golf? Oh, it, it had a, a huge impact. And throughout the time that it was sort of between its founding in 1925 and when the PGA finally allowed black golfers to compete in tournaments in 1961, the UGA was the only place where black golfers could go and compete on this national level. And they had women's championships as well. So women like Althea Gibson, uh, who is another well-known black golfer, and Renee Powell were going through the UGA. And then on the men's side, and Bill Spiller and all these great names that are still remembered today as being influential in 
essentially desegregating golf. Yeah. And I think it's cool that they had professional and amateur events. Yes. Going on at the same time. Exactly. They were open. They hosted tournaments that included professionals, amateurs, and even intercollegiate golfers. Yeah, this the story has so many cool different twists and turns. Uh, and, and, and one of them is the Chicago Women's Golf Club, which I, I believe was founded in 1937. Exactly. Maybe if you could uh, talk a little bit about the women's, the Chicago Women's Golf Club, what it was and perhaps its impact. So the Chicago Women's Golf Club, like you said, was founded in 1937, and it was the second golf club for black female golfers to exist in the country. And they, you know, allowed people like Anne to play. They had championships and tournaments themselves. And they also, it was their decision to join the USGA as members that provided Anne Gregory the avenue to be the first black woman to compete in the USGA championship. Incredibly amazing, isn't it? It is. I, I just think, you know, I, I, I didn't even know this story until really, uh, you know, I, I started, I received your notes on Anne Gregory. And uh, I, like I said, there's so many twists and turns. The Chicago Women's Golf Club, wish this wasn't the case, but I had never heard of it prior. And it's impactful and not in just her career, but in the history of golf and in the inclusion of the game. And what I find so amazing about organizations like the UGA and Chicago Women's Golf Club and other associations of its sort was that it was all running parallel to the main golf story, right? But these people were just carving out spaces for themselves to play the game that they loved because tragically they weren't invited to participate in the main tournaments. Um, and because of that, we don't often hear their stories. Yeah. And we don't hear stories like the UGA and the Chicago Women's Golf Club very often, um, which is you know, why I'm so thankful you're doing this podcast. Yeah, I, I, I have a small collection. I'm trying to um, make a larger collection here of, it's. I think it was called T Magazine. Have you ever seen this magazine? Uh, no, I haven't. It is a magazine for minority golfers of that era. So it basically covers all the UGA events. Awesome. And it, it all of the advertising in the magazine um, is generally black-owned businesses that around the game of golf. And it has tournament schedules and highlights of accomplishments. It's, I mean, it's really spectacular. I don't know how many were published, which is, you know, this is, which is why it's so hard to track down. But I found it in the last probably two years and have been trying to pick up as many articles as I can. When you think about it, it's about a group of people that loved golf, you know, even when you could probably argue that the game didn't love them back. Yeah. Four years later, after joining the uh, Chicago Women's Golf Club, she had a spectacular year in 47. Would you mind going over that a little bit? Yeah. 47, she was, in 1947, she was the, the queen of Negro women's golf. Um, by the Black Press, probably the same magazines that you were just talking about. And that's because prior to that, she won the Chicago Women's Golf Association Championship, the Joe Lewis Invitational, and the UGA Championship. Um, and so, you know, those were some of the best uh, tournaments that she could have been competing in, and she won them all. Uh, just, like you said, a few years after she picked up the golf club for the first time. Yeah, and I think in 47, I think you also mentioned that she was invited to play in the All-American Open. Is that correct? The All-American Open at the Tamil Chanter 
country club in Chicago. She was invited and competed as the only black woman. Um, and this was sort of her first taste of competing against the top white female amateurs. And you know, these are the people who might have received more training and more opportunity to hone their game. And so uh, that was a huge moment for her. And she said that it was at this championship when she saw all of her black friends in the gallery that she really just, it was very meaningful for her. Do we know if that 1947 tournament, and and it's okay if we don't, but do we know if that was one of the first, I guess you'd call it white tournaments to accept a black player in the field? I don't know um, historically if that's the first. I mean, obviously we have 1896, the U.S. Open, but... I guess I'm thinking for for women. Yeah, um, it was definitely the first in Anne's career. I'm not sure if that is the first ever, but it was definitely very early. I'm sure not many other championships were doing this at that time, you know, inviting black players to play. Yeah. How how did her game hold up prior to, to getting into the year of 1956? How did she do after that breakout year in 1947? Oh, she continued um, just winning basically everything she entered. She won another club tournament after that. Um, and then in 1950, she won six of the seven tournaments she entered. Um, wow. Yeah. So by the time we get to 1956 and her breakout performance in the Women's Open, actually, um, she was already, you know, had several wins under her belt and had actually a large following in the black community. Yeah, 1956 was pivotal for uh, several reasons. One you alluded to prior was the uh, historical step made by the USJ in allowing the Chicago Women's Golf Club into the USGA, which made all these things possible for Anne. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the 1956 U.S. Women's Open. Uh, Anne Gregory became the first black golfer to compete in the championship. But she also only played three rounds. Do we know what happened there? Um, that's lost, I think. Um, we're not sure why only three rounds, but that did cause some confusion because she wasn't listed in the record books. Um, so her appearance at the 1956 Women's Amateur is credited credited as her you know, breakout performance, but she had already broken barriers at the 1956 Women's Open earlier that year. Yeah, and, and the story of the uh, 1956 Women's U.S. Amateur is, is a fantastic one. Would you mind telling the story of her experience there? Sure. And, and, um, and maybe put it in, in put it in scale with the what was happening in the political backdrop, if you could. I will. Okay. Um, so she showed up at the Meridian Hills Country Club in Indianapolis in September of 1956 to compete at the Women's Amateur. And so she, you know, rolls up to this amateur and um, her first match is against Carolyn Cudone. And Carolyn Cudone is, she actually remembers experiencing a lot of pressure from, you know, a parking attendant, like people who weren't, you know, part of the inner circle of the players to beat Anne Gregory simply because she was black. I think there was, you know, tensions were very high at this time because the Brown versus Board of Ed the Supreme Court decision that desegregated schools had just happened a few years prior. In 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. led the Montgomery bus boycotts. So a lot of racial tension was being sort of dredged up by 
the civil rights movement at this time. And I think the backlash to that was very strong. So there was a lot of, you know, white people in the vicinity who were just pressuring Carolyn Cadone to be Anne Gregory because she was black. I think part of it was because Anne Gregory is black and part of it was because she was black and a fantastic player. So she posed a bit of a threat. And, but Carolyn Cadone, um, she recalls that the crowd at the first tee was just huge because Gregory had her own fans that had gathered. And, you know, the, there was a lot sort of going on at this championship. You know, she played well, but ultimately didn't go very far in the championship. Yeah. I mean, such a pivotal moment. It's, it's so odd to us, I think, now today and, you know, 2021 to think of how big of a deal this tournament would have yeah. been. And, and the pressure, I think, probably on Anne as well. It's never easy to be the pioneer in any sport, uh, let alone golf, where up until that time, the players were generally speaking white. Yeah. Um, and when they were not being actively kept out of tournaments, they were kept out simply because there weren't as many avenues for a black person to start playing, get lessons and make it to national championships. You know, the options just weren't there, which made Gregory's achievements just that much uh, more impressive. Agreed. So her career spanned five decades. Yeah. And as one of the pioneering black female golfers, she had to endure years of racism. What stories are you aware of? And how did Miss Gregory handle these ugly moments? Um, she faced a lot of discrimination, not really from the players, um, although there was one incident where um, a fellow competitor, Polly Riley, had asked Gregory for coat hangers because, you know, she saw a black woman in the hotel lobby. She was not So when Gregory brought her the coat hangers in golfing attire, you know, Polly Riley felt terrible that she had mistaken Gregory for a maid when she was actually a competitor. Um, so Anne actually did it? She did it. Yeah. You know, that was oh. indicative of her character. She was she was very good at letting these things roll off her back, even though they must have been very difficult for her. There's a few other instances. Um, so after 1956, Anne continued playing in USGA championships. And so there's a few instances at these championships where she was barred from spaces, right? So um, at ni- in 1959, she was barred by Congressional, the host club of that championship, the women's amateur, from eating with the other players. In her way, she just said, I'll eat me a hamburger and be just as happy as a lark. So you know, again, she just you know, let it roll yeah. off her back. And then actually, you know, she played so well in this championship that Congressional invited her back to play whenever she wanted. Uh, she didn't take them up on that offer. But and then again, you know, the next year in 1960 um, at the Women's Amateur, the manager of the White Hotel that the rest of the players were staying at did not honor her reservation and made her stay at a black hotel sort of across the street. It had no air conditioning. Oh, um, God. Yeah. Yeah. So she was expected to play after that, you know, after a bad night's sleep in a boiling hot room, she was expected to get up and compete at the same level as the rest of the women who had stayed in the hotel with air conditioning and cushy beds. So that was sort of what the rest of her career was like, you know, these little instances from the players, but just from hotels and clubs and 
restaurants. But going back to sort of her motto, her appearance during her final appearance in 1988 at a championship, it was a senior women's open. She said, racism is only in your mind. It's something that you overlook or you look at it. And that sort of is how she was able to let these these things roll off her back. Do you think she, did she ever see herself as a champion for black female golfers? Or, or was this just, she loved the game and, you know, just had an urge to, to play it at the highest level? Yeah, so I didn't know her personally, um, but we do have the writings of Rhonda Glenn, who is a, you know, a historian of she actually worked for the USGA. Um, so Rhonda Glenn was friends with Anne Gregory. And in her opinion, Gregory just saw herself as somebody who wanted to play golf. And she wanted to play golf at the highest levels and perfect her game and be competitive. And she wasn't doing that to be an activist. You know, she was just trying to live her dreams without facing the discrimination that she was going to face, if, you know? No, I understand. It's, I mean, it's just, it's kind of hard to take in, you know? Right. Everything she did was in spite of the discrimination she faced. And she was really just so gracious in the face of that. Uh, it's very, I can't help but <laughs> being very impressed by her and very touched by her story. Yeah, maybe if you could, could, would you mind kind of giving our listeners a, a list of uh, Miss Gregory's accomplishments over the years? Sure. Um, Just to put so, it in perspective. I think she won 300 tournaments in her life. Yep. <laughs> I yep. mean, that alone, 300 tournaments, it's unfathomable. Yeah, so 300 tournaments over five decades. Um, that included 26 USGA championships. Um, she also won the UGA championship four times. Which was their major championship, to be fair, their so everyone's aware of it. Yeah, and um, amazing, talented golfers played in those tournaments. Ex- yeah, yep, the best of the best. She also won the Chicago Women's Golf Club Championship five times and the Pepsi Cola International Championship six times. Wow. Yes, um, but also off the course, she uh, later became the president of the Chicago Women's Golf Club, and she also served as its tournament director. And she also would give golf and clinics to teach golf to junior and adult golfers. And then later on in her life, she was completing, or sorry, competing in the senior women's amateur and in the senior women's amateur circuit. She actually finished runner-up to her old opponent, Carolyn Coudon, if you remember her from the 1956 women's amateur. And she finished just a single stroke behind Carolyn in the 1971 senior women's amateur. She was at that time and remains the only black player to finish as a runner-up in a USGA women's competition. Wow. And then she had that amazing stat, right, in the U.S. National Senior Olympics. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. At age 76, she won the gold medal in the U.S. National Senior Olympics. And by how many strokes? 44 strokes. 44 strokes. (laughs) 44 strokes. I don't even know how that's – I don't – how is that possible? I don't know. That just, you know, she remained a fantastic golfer until the very end. She showed a lot of promise back when she first started golfing in 1943. And from that point on, she just never stopped. Yeah, just played throughout her whole life. And and when did uh, Miss Gregory pass away? When did we lose her? 
Um, we lost her in 1989, I think. Or sorry, 1990. 1990. And to that point, was much written or understood about her career? Like, did she did she realize that her accomplishments were weighted in golf history at that time? She must have. There are images of her, which I love, um, just sitting in a room surrounded by all of her trophies. She would joke about the crystal and the silver in her house and how, you know, it's a larger quantity than can be found in a store, you know, um, So she saw every day her accomplishments and must have known what that meant to people who looked like her. And unfortunately, there haven't been too many Black players since that have reached the heights that she has, that um, Anne Gregory did. So I'm not sure if she saw the fruits of her labors in desegregating the game at the national level, but... I'm sure she heard countless times from people what she meant to them. Yeah. When we think back on her career and her impact, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you think will be ultimately her legacy? I think her competing in the 1956 women's amateur, even though it was really just the start of her career is going to be what she is remembered for and what she is currently remembered for. And complete honesty, before I started delving further into her story in preparation for this podcast, that's sort of what I had in my mind. You know, that's the story we tell over and over. But once you, I hope that fact inspires people to dig further into her story because her legacy should really be just the consistency of her game and the uh, commitment she had to just doing what she wanted to do without regard for people who were trying to hold her back. Yeah, it's just not one moment. It's just not one tournament. It's the sum of her life, essentially. Yep. Every time she walked onto the course in a championship where she was the only black player, you know, she was making a statement and she was doing something extremely difficult. And she did that over and over for decades. Kylie, how does the USGA Museum celebrate the accomplishments of Anne Gregory and other black pioneers in the game of golf. Um, We try any chance we get to elevate these stories. You know, this is a great example of doing this podcast and Gregory specifically. We recently just a few years ago received a set of clubs and a golf bag from her daughter, Joanne. And so those will be going on permanent display in our galleries. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we'll be able to tell our story more, more fully then. But, you know, you walk walking throughout our galleries, we have a John Shippen Club on display. We have a UGA trophy on display. We have things just sort of peppered through the galleries that just are a reminder that Black golfers have always been playing, um, you know, since the very beginning. You know, it's a underappreciated part of our history. You know, not all history is porcelain. You know what I mean? Not all of it is... Uh, necessarily good. Uh, But there are stories to be told, even in our murky bad times of segregation and racism, people's stories that shine through that. And Anne Gregory's is certainly one of those stories. And I'll tell you, uh, Kylie, I mean, I I plan on telling, uh, I hope to get it done in 2021, but the history of the UGA, 
for that very reason. I think it's much like baseball has helped tell you know the the story of the Negro Leagues. The story of the UGA is equally as fascinating, uh, equally as compelling, and it tells the story of some champions that you know the average golfer has no idea about. I love that. Yeah, that's definitely a story that needs to be told. So I guess before we go, how do we, what's the best way to go about honoring the memory, the career, the accomplishments of Ann Gregory? Oh, that's hard. I know, um, I know. <laughs> I think just talking about her and, you know, sort of letting her speak for herself as well. She um, really just saw herself as somebody who wanted to play golf. And I think that's how we should remember her, you know, not as somebody who was this great activist for the game, but just somebody who wanted to do what she wanted to do. And, you know, not trying to minimize her accomplishments, but she was just being her. She just wanted to be a golfer. Yep. You know, she, she just wanted to be appreciated for her abilities. Yep. And so I think the best way to honor her is to appreciate her abilities. (laughs) 300 wins. I mean, that stat alone, I'm just, it blows me away. I mean, I, I think that is, Similar to a uh, stat that I read about, uh, you know, the old man, Walter Travis, I think he won 300 some tournaments in his lifetime. So it's, it's odd how their, their games kind of echo each other late start yet, you know, a a firing blaze of amazement from their games. That's a great connection. I love that, you know, just putting her at the same level as somebody else who's already celebrated. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of it, right? This is why, you know, we're on this podcast today. That's why, you know, I do this show. It's it's not always to talk about, or seldom actually, to talk about the accomplishments of, say, you know, Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. A lot of people know those stories. And yes, I'll, I'll, we'll probably tell them at some point on the show, but, uh, you know, it's these stories that fascinate me. It's the, you know, the stories, you know, behind the curtain of golf and, you know, one of the heaviest curtains of all is the segregated, you know, aspect of the game in our early history. Mm-hmm. So shining a light on folks like Ann Gregory, I just, I find it to be one of the great important things that we can deliver on this podcast. I agree 100%. Well, Kylie, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Golf History. It's it's always a sincere honor to have the ladies from the USGA Museum on the show. Thank you. It has been 65 years since Anne Gregory became the first black woman to contend in a U.S. Women's Open and Amateur, and her name, for the most part, has been buried in the warehouse known as golf history. We rightfully celebrate those sporting pioneers like Major League Baseball's Jackie Robinson, or the NFL's Kenny Robinson, Earl Lloyd in the NBA, and Charlie Sifford of the PGA Tour. Anne Gregory's story is equally compelling in breaking the color line in golf a full eight years before Althea Gibson would become the first black woman to join the LPGA Tour. A very special thanks to my friends at the USGA Golf Museum for keeping these stories alive, for caring about those individuals who have been overlooked, and helping to tell their triumphant tales. Until next time, yours in golf history. This is Conrad T. Lewis.